Good evening, San Diego. I'm Ron Burgundy. No, that was the wrong wrong tape here. Uh, Jonathan Fights, Beyond Lucid Technologies. Uh, thank you to all who are attending today's GEMS talk. I am thrilled to be here with Reuven Farnsworth, uh, who I am not going to give the credit where it's due, so I am about to ask him to tell us more about him. But among other uh, appellations, uh, he is with the Delta County Ambulance District in Colorado. He is with Rockstar Education, uh, the appropriate name for somebody whose travel schedule actually makes me uh, feel unproductive, which can take some work, uh, as well as doing consulting and uh, pitching in on fire deployments uh, and focusing on a range of things from community paramedicine and ET3 to the business of running a mobile medical service uh, in 2022, when there's kind of a lot happening, a lot of change, uh, and Ruben has perspectives both from the front line and the back office. Uh, so Ruben, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, and I I'm so excited to, to dig into lots of things here, but why don't, we, uh, why don't we start with you telling the world, any, any of the four people who don't yet know you, tell us a little bit about you, sir. Uh, well, like I said, I, uh, I've been a field paramedic for little over 20 years and uh, yeah, working at a rural agency here in Western Colorado. I speak on the conference circuit. I do a little bit of writing and trade publications. Uh, I do consulting work uh, all over the country. Most of my consulting work now is with uh, community paramedic programs, mobile integrated healthcare. Uh, have a couple of big projects going on the East Coast right now. Uh, yeah. Just happy to happy to be here. Doing well, a lot tell, of innovative stuff. Well, uh, why don't you start by sort of telling telling the the again the the, the couple people watching this show who don't already know you haven't heard your background. How did you get to where you are? Again, and tell I know you mentioned there's a consulting firm as well, separate from Rockstar Consulting, separate from DCAD. Tell me the name of that one. Oh, okay, so that's uh, Premier EMS Consulting. Yeah, so, so I started on a volunteer ambulance service a little over 20 years ago. Um, when I first got out of high school, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I was in a pre-med program and uh, was young and stupid and dropped out of college and uh, became a diesel mechanic. And then I still had this interest in medicine. So I got on the volunteer ambulance service. And uh, my very first run was a 11-year-old girl who uh, attempted suicide with a steak knife and I was the driver for the ambulance CPR certified nothing more and I was hooked I took an EMT class uh, did that for a while went full-time with uh, DCAD uh, about 15 years ago and uh, just really haven't looked back I uh, you know when I went to DCAD I right away went to paramedic school very early on um, got a critical care endorsement from IBSC, started a critical care program here, started teaching a lot uh, with one of my instructors from paramedic school. Uh, he got me into teaching all the alphabet soup classes. Then I started getting into conferences. You know, it was one, then two, then four, then 10, then 20, then, uh, hey, sorry, I can't do any more this year. Uh, yeah, you know, I, uh, I guess I've just kind of always said yes along the way. So when somebody offered me a consulting gig, I said yes. When someone offered me a contract gig for COVID or a DMAT team or some type of deployment uh, to be a personal medic for someone, 
try it. Looks cool. And uh, just been fortunate to meet a lot of great people who have opened doors for me and taken those opportunities. Well, now let's just let just to see if 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 that magic still exists. Um, would you like to do my accounting work for me? Negative. Oh, here, here's how I was hoping. I was hoping the yes, the yes yeah, is going. No, yes. Not accounting. You know <laughs> how I feel about accounting. All right. So the the subject of today's conversation um, is going to go in a couple of directions, and ultimately. What I hope we bring it back to, it's sort of the, the orbiting kernel, the sun at the center of our conversation uh, today, is really going to be the business of, of mobile medicine. Uh, and by mobile medicine, we mean fire, we mean emergency medical services, non-emergency transport, critical care. Uh, you, you personally, but also the services you work with, the people you've consulted for, do a lot of different things. And one thing that I think we can always count on you, along with maybe me and a couple other people like the Tim Nowaks of the world, uh, is that we see a bear, we gonna poke it. My view is I, I smack it on the nose, I run, I hide behind you, uh, and, then, and then you tell me what I need to know next. That's my MO for surviving this world. Uh, but you know, one of the things that I think you made a very fascinating statement on, and you've done it quite publicly, so I don't, I don't mind calling it out, and I'd like you to elaborate on that as sort of a way of digging right into this is the idea that we do not have a personnel shortage in this industry, this profession, to, to quote Mike Touchstone, he really prefers the profession, I think he's right. So that if, if there is, you, you have said that there is no shortage of people, um, tell me what you mean, because I think there are a lot of people, a lot of agencies who would look at their rosters and their need to fill in some gaps. And for the record, I think I agree with you, um, but I think one of the challenges that this profession finds is that it has a fundamental misunderstanding of certain things like economics uh, that are that are formative, right? When you are looking to structure an organization and keep it not only going but growing, uh, and I think your your statement kind of hits the iceberg on that, and then we'll we'll be off to the races. So. Uh, why don't you elaborate a little bit on what you've meant when you've said that in the past? So I think that uh, when I say there's not a shortage of people, I don't think there's a shortage of paramedics. I think there's a shortage of paramedics willing to work for peanuts. Um, when you can go get a job at McDonald's for the same money you're being paid to be a paramedic, a love of emergency medicine only takes you so far when you have children and bills to pay and a mortgage. And so I think the challenge becomes we're not paying people enough. We have EMS people who are working three different jobs. They're working for two or three ambulance services and moonlighting as an ER tech. And so, you know, a hundred hour week is not uncommon for an EMS provider and it leaves no work-life balance. And I think people are getting to the point where they're like, no, I I want time with my children. I want time to go fishing. I want time to go do whatever it is I like to do when I'm not at work. And I want to have the money to do that. And they're realizing that, you know, there's a great many jobs out there that pay significantly better than being a field paramedic. And so, you know, you're left with the people who just love it so much they can't walk away from it regardless of what it pays. Kind of like school teachers. Well, and I know you have a daughter. How old is she? 
Fine. <laughs> Wonderful. So you, you've made time to be active with her. You obviously make the time to be on the road, to do all the different things that, that you've mentioned that we talk about. And you have a leadership role at DCAD. So to what do you attribute your ability and you know, full disclosure, I have enormous affection for DCAD, for Kirby Clock, for the organization that he runs and that you, you, know, you guys partner on. But what, to what do you attribute your ability first and foremost to be able to have that balance and be able to feel like you are able to get all these things done? And you're a young guy. I mean, you and I are on the same age. So, so how, do you, how do you find that you're able to get that balance so that you can have the perspective on what people are missing and what it could be? Well, I think number one, you overestimate that I get things done. Um, I, uh, I have an ongoing to-do list that continually grows and never seems to shrink. Well, you make me feel unproductive and I'm rounding 19 hours a day. So whatever, um, you're doing, I'm, I'm taking notes, man. I think that, you know, well, first off, there was a, there was definitely a period in my career where I worked a hundred hours a week. Um, you know, I took every ounce of overtime that was offered. I was deploying three, four, five times a year. I was speaking at 20 conferences a year. And part of it was I had to build my resume to the point that I could command more money. Um, you know, and then part of it was too, at one point, I just realized that, you know, I am tired of working this much. And so I started prioritizing and I started asking myself, you know, is, is half of my day on a Saturday worth the $200 I'm going to make to go teach CPR? And I said, no. And I started saying, is being out of town three days to speak at a conference one day and be paid $300 worth being away from my daughter for three days? And the answer was no. For that $300 and those four flight segments, and I would rather spend time with my daughter, go play around to golf and go fishing. Um, and so I started asking myself what, you know, what's the value of my time and what's the value of it to me? So, you know, if Jonathan wants me to come speak in an event you have going on, I have to ask myself, what's the value of time for me? And if, if you don't value my time as much as I do, that's fine. That's capitalist society. And I appreciate that, but then I'll say, no, I'm let, sorry. I, let the record reflect that I am offering to ply you with wine and fabulous food, and that that was just a theoretical construct. It was a theoretical construct. Because um, hanging out with me is generally going to be worth its entertainment value in gold. That's true. The stupid so that will come out of me, his mouth. It came, down to, it came down to priorities. So for me, it was a priority. So I figured out ways to make that priority a reality. And I let some things go. I cut some things back and did I want to stick a pin in this because I think there's an overarching lesson that, that you just jumped over and we're going to need to talk about it, which is the time value of money, right? And, and the concept that I believe, that just like you mentioned on the one hand, there is a payment problem in this business, a wage problem, a compensation problem, a big shout out to the Congress of Mobile Medical Professionals for trying to 
lurch the word reimbursement away from that grammatical error that it is toward the word compensation, which is what we should be talking about getting paid for the work that you do <laughs> in a value-based model, right? I mean, you know, look at what we do and, and pay us accordingly, not, not pay back the bags of saline uh, or the, you know, the epi injection. Um, so I think when we look at the question of compensation, we need to ask the, the, the hard questions of how we measure what we do, right? What is the value? And I'm not a clinician, right? As, as I think at this point, probably everybody knows. I'm a geek, I'm a technologist, I'm a money grubber. This is what I do. I help people get paid for their work. Um, and, and what it really is about is looking at the bigger picture about how the work that you do translates into value delivery, right? For example, when I look at my work on the data side, if all you were doing was creating a receipt for the patient, right? Where did you take them? Who did you hand them to? What did you do along the way? The value of that is extremely low and deserves to be compensated accordingly because you're getting essentially no value. Right? But if you take a broader view and you look at the idea that that information could affect what happens next to the patient and make sure that the patient's uh, uh, continuity, continuity of care is maintained, and then you have the ability to look at what the provider went through and say, did this person experience a sentinel event and do I need to now sit them down with someone to make sure they're okay? All of a sudden, this thing has a lot of value, right? And what you have so often described to me, and again, I think it goes back to the question of working for peanuts, is why do you think people are willing to do that? I think on the one hand, I see passion as a big part of that, right? I mean, even those folks who complain the most about getting paid very little have often been in the business for a long time, right? And they've, and they've been here for 20 years and 30 years and they're still here. And so even though they complained about going, you know, I could go to Walmart or McDonald's, something keeps them here. So I think passion plays into that. But why do you think in this industry that is national and international and involves some very big players, why do we still have a fundamental misunderstanding of supply and demand, basic Adam Smith economic theory, where in order to get paid more, you either have to reduce the supply or increase the demand to the point where people are willing to say, I don't have a choice and you're delivering value, so I'm happy to pay you. Where, where is that breakdown happening? <laughs> I think the breakdown happens in that, number one, EMS has for years been lumped in as part of the public safety model with fire and law enforcement. Well, you know, if you ask, you know, what is the value proposition of law enforcement? Now, don't get me wrong. I love the police officers I work with. I have police officers in my family, but from an economic perspective, right? What, what is the value police officers bring, right? You can say that they uh, maintain civility and they maintain law and order and that allows businesses to function and so on and so forth. But ultimately they're funded by the taxpayer, by a city, by a county, by a state. They're somehow funded by government. And the same thing with fire. And so we have this, we have this concept of that we're, we're an essential service and people need to just give us money. Um, unfortunately, 
we don't lobby as well as fire does. Uh, in most cases, we're not unionized like many law enforcement agencies are. And, and so we look at ourselves as this service that needs to just be magically paid. Um, and I think we, we don't look at ourselves as part of the business model, right? You, you look at a hospital and yeah, there's some places where a doctor or a nurse is in charge of a hospital, but there's a reason that they have a master's in healthcare administration. People who run hospitals are business people. Even if they used to be a clinician, they're rarely a clinician anymore. They're a business person. And in EMS, we take people and go, hey, you're a really great field paramedic. Congratulations. You're now the operations manager. Congratulations. You're now the EMS chief. Well, let's be realistic. Being a great software engineer or computer programmer does not make you a good CEO of a data company. It makes you a great software engineer. It makes you great at writing code to build a PCR program, but it does not make you a CEO to run a company. Um, you know, you need an MBA or you need, you need to be a businessman. And we don't do that in EMS. We, we don't look at it like a business and it is a business, no matter what you want to call it. We have to have revenue streams and we have to pay people and we have to buy ambulances and we have to put tires on ambulances and have insurance and buy drugs. And it's a business. The only difference is in many cases, the, the business aspect, there's not one guy getting rich from that ambulance because it's a municipal service or whatever. Um, you know, it's a nonprofit or it's a governmental entity, but it's still a business. The government's a business. The U.S. government's the biggest corporation in the world, right? Like, it's, uh, you know, like many businesses, it has way too much overhead, but that's a whole other topic. So I, it's, it's interesting when you, when you put EMS in that framework. And my, one of my latest articles looked at the the whole notion of being the redheaded stepchild of the healthcare system, <laughs> which obviously in this profession gets talked about a lot. And I was at the South Carolina EMS Symposium a couple months ago, where uh, the head, I think he's president and CEO, <laughs> the head of the South Carolina Hospital Association made a really interesting comment. He said, you know, if you talk to EMS about feeling that way and you want to know you're not alone talk to nurses right they feel like they're the red-headed headed stepchild of their portion of the healthcare ecosystem and we talk to doctors and they feel like they're the red-headed stepchild relative to insurance companies right everybody kind of feels like they're being bossed around by somebody else and the reason why i think that's interesting is because i had a conversation literally last week about the same principle that you just mentioned on the fire side, right? Where, you know, the, yes, the economics are different is there are very few private fire-based systems or, you know, privately funded private-based uh, fire-based systems in the U.S. Um, certainly there are some, especially when you get into industry, right? And, and whatnot in certain areas, but, but fairly few. And yet you have, in some cases, multi-billion dollar P&Ls that are 
being managed by folks who are essentially promoted in the same way you described, right, based on seniority. Um, some of which, of course, have gone and gotten education, like you talked about, uh, but a lot of whom kind of learned on the job. And so there's pros and cons to that, right? Deep, deep domain knowledge, but not necessarily all of the pieces. Uh, one could argue, as I would, uh, that you could probably hire the right expertise. That's a CEO's job. Um, but do you think the perspective that you have and that you just mentioned is something that we are all struggling with and therefore need to do kind of a systemic teardown? Or is this something that mobile medicine, for whatever reason, has worse because of its fractured nature or because it's got so many more varieties within it? Uh, does that make sense? Some of the, it, the it does. You know, I think the I, I think it's a global problem, but I think it's also a larger problem in mobile medicine. And I think part of the reason is, you know, the old adage that if you've seen one M MIH program or you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system or one MIH program. You know, as well as I do, traveling all over the country that everywhere I go, I'm amazed by the diversity of how EMS systems function. Now you take hospitals, right? And pretty much all hospitals, you know, relatively speaking, they all have their own policies and things, but they pretty well function the same way, right? You go to the ER, you get checked out, you get triaged, you get either treated and treated, or you get referred to a specialist or you get admitted. Like, you know, they work, they relatively work the same way. Fire departments relatively work the same way. They all have relatively the same command structure. They all have, you know, relatively the same type of response models. You know, it's very similar. You know, um, you can easily go from Chicago fire to Denver fire to LA fire and just kind of slip right into the role, right? If you're an experienced firefighter. But EMS, I mean, goodness gracious, every state, the scope of practice is different. Every state, the reporting requirements to the state are different. Every state, the payment models are different. You know, you take MIH, I mean, Minnesota reimburses through Medicaid. They have state legislation to do so. Many other places don't. Um, you know, there's such a diverse set of operating procedures and system designs. And, you know, you have private service, third service, hospital-based, county-based you know, city-based, fire-based, there's all these different paradigms of how EMS service is provided. And so trying to come up with a common framework of, oh yeah, this is how we're gonna do it is very difficult. You know, I think it's so fascinating. I, I, I don't think today, if we have enough time, although maybe in another, either another one of these or another context, hint, hint, wine, <laughs> well, we'll talk about, you know, education per se, but it's interesting. Like I, I only have three degrees. So I tend to have, oh, yeah, well, I, you know, I, I tend to have an interesting view on this. I think most people assume that I'm going to be very pro formal education. And, and in fact, I'm not, I'm, I'm much more pro fit what you need in your context. Right. I don't think, I think if, if everybody went to college, you know, we'd have some some things that would be great coming out of that. We'd probably all be better rounded individuals. Uh, but 
you know, trade tech is a thing. And, and there is a, there are certain jobs that are extremely honorable that don't necessarily require you to have a, a history of the philosophy of, uh, you know, underwater basket weaving to use the common one. Um, but it's interesting when we look at mobile medicine and you, you've raised an interesting point on a compactor about its diversity. And, and I think it is, and, and we'll come to the value proposition in your neck of the woods that I want to highlight. But I can make a general statement that I will stand behind, which is the best in the world, single best mobile medical system in the world is the state of Israel. And, and Israel has gotten exceedingly good at, you know, first some it's a very bad thing to be really good at um, because, you know, when you have no choice. And yet it's really quite interesting that not everybody goes to college, right? Everybody goes to the military. And so you end up kind of in this, this, this uh, uh, baseline of knowledge that everybody has. And what I think college does, or higher education in general does, is it provides a framework for reference outside of the technologies and the technicals itself, right? They, there's a lot more asking of the why. <laughs> Tell me why I did. How did I get here, right? So instead of just being really, really good at responding to a bus that exploded, right, or missiles raining down, you have a worldview that allows you to be very adaptable. Um, and and I, like I said, I wasn't not really planning on going down the education uh, rabbit hole right now, but I wonder what you think of that, sort of this idea of, do we need the people who, are, who rise to leadership to have the ability to look outside of this profession and say, what are we doing in banking? What are we doing in writing? What are we doing in media? What are we doing in, I don't know, consumer packaged goods in order to be able to adapt the lessons and the methods to the various folks who join this workforce? So, Is that the argument for education? For so it, we're going to have to be careful not to get in the education rabbit hole because I think you probably remember I wrote a piece about this for uh, EMS trade publication. And, give us two um, minutes. Give us two minutes on. It. Good, we got fifteen minutes. So give me give me two minutes on your piece. Summarize it. Up. Meanwhile, you're doing that. I'm going to put your book on screen here. Well, so. uh, I mean, basically, you know, my my thought is that one, education will advance us as an industry, as a profession, uh, if we have more education. You know, people scream for higher pay, and I think that. You know, one of the things, you know, you asked earlier how I got to where I could prioritize my time. Part of it was that I pursued higher education and I made myself more valuable to my employers and said, you need to pay me because I can do things that the run of the mill paramedic cannot. Do I think that a bachelor's degree in anything will make somebody better at intubating or driving an ambulance emergently? I do not. Uh, but I think, as you said, it makes people more rounded individuals. And I think definitely when we look at the leadership teams, you know, you're seeing a lot more places where to be a chief, they want you to have a master's. They want an MPA, an MBA, an MHA. They want to see that administration degree, whether it's healthcare or whatever. Uh, so I think that especially at a leadership level, whether it's a line officer uh, you know, a battalion level position, that kind of thing. 
I think that education is imperative because like you said, it helps people look outside the microcosm of their agency to what's happening industry-wide and what's happening in other industries around you that may affect you. And I think it just gives you a better ability to, to ask, ask questions, right? You know, the, you know, the most damaging phrase, and we use it in first responder professions all the time is, <laughs> well, this is the way we've always done it. And I think education gives you the ability to say, why is this the way we've always done it? Why aren't we doing that? Um, and I think those why questions are what help drive the profession forward. Well, okay, so let, let me take, I'm gonna take a hard turn from that, but build on the why. Because you personally have lived my why. And I'm gonna throw that out both personally and professionally. Um, I am a person who grew up with a disability. Uh, for those watching, if your screen looks a little twitchy, uh, when you're looking at me, it's not your monitor, it's my face, so don't adjust the channel. Uh, as, as someone who grew up with a disability, I take very much to heart some of the work that you and your colleagues have done in Colorado uh, to take care of some extremely needy patients. Uh, needy in, the, in the, you know, the real sense of the word, they have needs that were not being met until you came along. And I think when you talk about the why and what justifies the long hours, what justifies the skill sets clinically and the ability to command resources to, to do more of that. Um, tell us about the boy uh, and, and, tell us, and tell us about some of the others. I, I hone in on this child, but ET3 and PACE and the Area uh, Agency on Aging, there are things, I wanna take a few minutes for you to talk to me about these things and these groups that you partner with and how they drive not only your daily work, but can drive the profession if folks understood how that translates to the ability to do more of the same. <laughs> so, uh, you know, quite, I remember when I went to paramedic school, people were starting to talk about mobile integrated healthcare. And I remember even then I was like, this is, this is gonna change the world. This is gonna change the way people access healthcare. As I came along in my career, I was fortunate and my chief shared that same kind of vision as me. And I said, you know, I wanna do this. I feel like our community is poised for this. And uh, I've been very fortunate to assemble a team of absolute rock stars who share this vision of changing the world. Uh, that we can change the world, we can change the way people access healthcare and the way people experience the healthcare paradigm in their life. And our kind of internal joke, but seriously, is uh, with my team, the answer is always yes. When any other healthcare professional, adult protective services, hospital discharge planners, when they call and say, can you my team says, yes, they don't even need to hear what it is. They say, yes, we will figure out how to do it. And then we'll talk about how we're going to get paid for it later, but we'll get the ball rolling. I know a guy who has a similar approach to that. Yeah, exactly. Me too. So, uh, so we got a call from a pharmacy out of Chicago, a specialty pharmacy that said, hey, 
we are trying to find someone to do home infusions on a 11 year old boy with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. And we can't find anyone to do it. Can you do that? And I said, the answer is yes. Um, of course we can. So we embarked on this journey for this 11 year old child who him and his family, he was involved in, enrolled in a experimental drug trial. At one point they were having to fly to Portland, Oregon once a week. Then it became, they were having to drive to Salt Lake or Denver uh, every four days, uh, which is a five hour drive one way going either way, whether they're going to Salt Lake or Denver. So 10 hours of driving round trip, uh, plus the time for the infusion, usually a hotel night, et cetera. Um, and so we got involved and we got some specialized training on the medication. It was a fascinating medication. So, you know, people with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, they have an inability at the genetic level to code for a protein called dystrophin. And what this medication does is called Amandi 45. It targets the, the defective gene in Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and it skips the defective exon in the genetic sequence. So it's like a jumper wire. And basically it allows this young man to code for a shortened version of dystrophin. Now, unfortunately it won't cure him. Ultimately it will still be a terminal illness. Uh, but what it did do is it allows him to make this dystrophin. So it's gonna extend the amount of time he has muscle usage. It will extend his life and it will extend the functional period of his life. And I remember the thing that really hit me about this case is we were in a living room uh, 45 minutes from the nearest level four trauma center accessing a pediatric port in this young man's bedroom and then watching him play a computer game while he got his infusion um, with his mom and his dad there and his brothers. And I realized it hit me that, you know, the, the greatest gift we really gave these people was time because a child with a terminal illness, the most precious commodity you have is time with your child. And as a parent, I could really appreciate that. And so, you know, we, we started talking about like, you know, wow, this is, you know, this is 20 hours a week that mom and the ill child were elsewhere around the country with dad at home taking care of the other children. And so, you know, to me, the most valuable part of that was the time we gave them. Um, it's more time with their son and, and that's going to be inherently value, uh, valuable to them uh, at some point when ultimately the, the disease process does consume him. Well, unfortunately it will. Let me jump in there because again, I want to, I, I was, I've been sort of leading you down this direction because I want to come back to where we started, <laughs> which is the economic principle of the time value of money, right? And one of the things that not only you and I, but pretty much anyone who will be within earshot of me on a semi-regular basis, and with the, obviously the internet, I can, I can talk to everybody, um, will, will hear me talk about the importance of taking value down to numbers, right? And and I, I wish I could say that I came up with that. One of my earliest colleagues in my, my our, our company journey is a clinician, uh, is a guy you think I spent a lot of time in school. He has an MD, an MBA, and an MPH. This man has given more money away in tuition dollars than pretty much anyone should ever do. Uh, 
And, and yet Mark Whitman, so we were sitting, I'll never forget it. We were sitting down at a Starbucks in Los Angeles. And he said, you can't talk to doctors about making people better because it's impossible to measure, <laughs> right? What does better mean, <laughs> right? You have to talk in terms of hard numbers, hard hard values, whether that's vital signs or minutes saved or dollars saved or minutes made or you know whatever it is, capabilities that you didn't have before, right? things that are tangible, right? And the conversations about things like mobile integrated health, community paramedicine, mobile medicine in general, tend to tend to fail on the rocks, from my view, of we just want to do good things, right? We want to do well by people. Um, we want to do well by doing good, et cetera, et cetera, you know? And it's extremely difficult to measure that. But what you just did, and I'll never forget the conversation that you and I had when you started to talk to me about what you were doing. And I remember saying all the technical details, all of the clinical details, they don't matter. What matters is the time, right? And if you lead with that story, you have something measured, right? And it, it and, and so why as an industry, as a profession, or maybe what can we do to get people to understand that if you can take the story of what you did to care for this boy, to give him and his family minutes that can be counted, right? There are resources in this country, whether they are government or forget government, they are associations, there are private people, there are community organizations, you know, there are, there are all kinds of resources that are vested in the well-being of our people, right? I happen to be an optimist. I'm a very religious person in my way. And I find it compelling that every time we have a shooting, right, there was the, 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 the child who, you know, his parents both got killed in the Illinois Highland Park tragedy. And this orphaned child has a GoFundMe page in the millions of dollars right now from strangers, right? Like we are a tremendously resilient population and, and world, but we have to take it down to the point where we can measure and say, this is what you're gonna get out for what we put in. And it doesn't necessarily have to be dollars. It doesn't necessarily have to be reimbursement. It could be time back, right? What can we do? to better tell the story that, in my words, the product of your work, Ruben, and everybody who's listening today, though your product is time, right? It's people getting up off the gurney and walking out, right? Like getting more time back. And, and I think if we change the, and reframe that conversation, there could be resources that will knock us sideways. But somehow we don't tell that story. We keep saying, I want a reimbursement code so that I can play at the table of somebody else instead of saying, this is our product. And our product is you get to, ideally, you get to go home. And even if your life is going to be short, it's longer than it would have been because we were involved. So I think that sounds great. But you take that case. Um, we were We were compensated we were compensated for our time, um, but not much past break even. And so I think the challenge becomes that, you know, for the individual, it sounds great. And ultimately that case, um, you know, that person was part of our community and 
we could afford to do it. And so even if we didn't get paid, we would have done that because it was the right thing to do. But, you know, we don't get paid. Insurance companies don't pay for your time. Insurance companies and payers pay for value. And to them, Jonathan Fight having more time is not a value to them. Jonathan Fight costing them less money in the long run is a value to them. And so I think, you know, we, while those things are very important and the, the humanitarian aspect of it and the altruistic aspect of it, which is inherent in, I think, most people in healthcare, we all have this altruistic streak that we want to help people and we want to do good things, but that's not what payers pay for. Well, sorry, I was just switching there. I'm going to put something up on a screen here. I know we're coming close to time, but I think this is a pretty tremendous statement you just made. Um, and I, and again, I know that I'm preaching a little bit to the choir here because of how deeply you and I have dug into this. But I hope that what's on screen here becomes a takeaway for everyone watching today or another day. The concept of actuarial risk, insurance risk, is the way that our profession can translate time into money. Right? So... The way that insurance companies value things is, it, it, I mean, it, it's really quite profane when you think about it, but what they're actually looking at is how much are you going to pay and how much you're going to cost before you die, right? That's 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 essentially what an actual- Bottom line, right? And if not death, then, you know, at a company level, it might be until you have some kind of adverse event, right? But it's basically how much are you going to cost? versus how much are you going to bring it? And it becomes, you know, my, my last uh, conversation uh, here for Gems Talk was with Caitlin Krolikowski from the Purchase Area Health Connections in, in Kentucky. And I encourage everybody, if you can, to listen to her. She's a brilliant person, also looking at community paramedicine, uh, community health work uh, from, the, from a different angle, different, different lens of the same, you know, different facets, same diamond. <laughs> And, and we talk about her role and the role of folks like community health workers as a Rosetta Stone. In fact, that was the, the, the theme of the, of the conversation, was a translator, right? Between the different parts of this ecosystem. And it's so fascinating Ruben, that what you just landed on is this idea that we're speaking different languages, right? The, what I find very challenging, and I've been privileged to be involved with some organizations that have struggled for years uh, to understand how the words they were saying were not being understood by a partner. <laughs> and that partner was a wonderful partner. They had their heart in the right place, right? But language got in the way. <laughs> and, and I think it is a tremendous opportunity to realize that if this profession begins to understand not to build actuarial models, those are, those are quite complicated to construct, <laughs> but, but the idea that if I can translate my work as a clinician 
as a firefighter, as a law enforcement officer, into reduced risk to individuals, to communities, to resources, right? Because you're sucking down less and you're repurposing it, it brings back time that allows you to do more. Um, then you start to reduce the overall cost while allowing the system to last long, right? And bring in those resources from the community. And those resources may not be insurance. They may not be reimbursement. They may be from folks who are themselves being paid for souls under coverage in an opioid intervention program, right? Or an area agency on aging whose job is to allow people to live longer, more independently, more comfortably at home, right? But by reframing the conversation, we can, we can translate the, the work over here of I wanna do good. I wanna, I wanna be in this profession because it's noble and I, and I, and I love what I do. And we can translate it into the numbers that somebody else will need to be able to say, based on what you did, as it looks on a curve, I understand why you should be paid everything you're being paid plus minus, are you either delivering value or are you sucking away value from the ecosystem as a whole? What do you think? I think if you... I think when we, if we consider this like a Venn diagram, right? We, we say that here are the reasons we do this. These are the altruistic humanitarian reasons we want to do these things. And these are the reasons it holds value to someone. When we find that intersection, you know, we had another patient who was a 38-year-old, non-compliant, type 1 diabetic, history of methamphetamine usage, bilateral amputee at the knee, morbidly obese, who was admitted to the ICU with a diagnosis of sepsis, because uh, this female patient had a large wound that had developed under her paniculus or a big fat fold that hung over on her belly. Uh, and we were contacted by the discharge planner who said, hey, um, this woman is just consistently in and out every couple of days. Um, we wanna try and keep her out of the hospital. And now, funny story, I found out afterwards that there was a running bet with the discharge planners that we wouldn't make it three days before the patient was back in the ER. Uh, we saw her three times a week for 30 days, and she didn't call 911 once. She didn't go into the ER. She did not readmit. There was drastic improvement in her wound. Along that process, we helped her with her housing and maintaining it. We connected her via telehealth with her PCP when we'd go to visit. We'd take the social worker with us to the visits. We helped get her out of the apartment she was in and into a handicap accessible apartment. And so we accomplished all these things of making this woman's life better and making her feel like someone cared and that she had a support system to be successful but we also delivered a stunning value to the hospital who paid us very well to go see that patient three times a week for a month. And they were ready to throw us a party when we were done because holy cow. Now you and I both know we've had extensive conversations that despite what all the experts say, um, hospital readmission avoidance is not a strong way to go in most cases to create value in an MIH program. Agreed. But in that case, it was. In that case, it was a great value add for the hospital 
but those cases are rare in my opinion well, in most well, cases. But as kind of a last value, I think that Venn diagram is a wonderful place to, to close out the conversation, but let, let's follow the ball, right? So when you say it was a value, what was, what would have been the relative value either lost or gained to the hospital to have this person continually coming back at the risk of a iatrogenic error, at the risk of some other complication, at the risk of underinsurance, at the risk of, you know, what are the downstream effects that could have happened if she had just coming back? Because we talk about, you're well, right, we talk about readmission in a bubble. But in this case, if you were to actually lay that out and say, here was why they cared, why did they focus on this person besides the idea that they wanted to get her better? So, well, so simply put, I mean, so that hospital, their actual cost for a med surge bed is $1,800 per day. That's what it costs them to have a patient in the bed. That's the cost of the nurses, the power, the television, the sheets being laundered, et cetera. The daily cost of an ICU bed for that hospital is $4,500 per day. So that patient being in the ICU for 10 days is a $45,000 bill. That patient's a Medicaid patient. So the hospital's not getting reimbursed well for it. And with the 30-day readmission guidelines, in that case, there's the Penalty. lost costs they're not getting reimbursed for. But then if we go back to our business conversation, there's the opportunity cost. There it is. So if the hospital ICU is full, and now the next potential ICU admit they have, or med surge admit, has to be transferred to another hospital because their bed is full of someone they're not getting paid for because they continue to readmit. Not only do we have the actual cost, you know, let's say even a med surge bed, $1,800 a day is their cost. And, you know, 10 days, that's $18,000 it costs them to have that patient in there. Even if we just said the opportunity cost of their cost at another $18,000, they're out $36,000 in 10 days between actual cost and missed opportunity cost. But the value is actually going to be higher because they're going to bill more for that bed than their actual cost. So the plus, plus the, the chance opportunity of, cost, it could be 45 grand they're out in 10 days. Like plus the chance of risk, right? Again, that's plus the, exactly the chance of risk, lawsuit, iatrogenic error, you know, further complication that elevates the patient to ICU status, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the but the real takeaway here, uh, Ruben, and I think again, let, let's let's end here, is you've done your homework, right? And and I hope that everybody who watches, I mean, it's extremely impressive. Again, I know you know these numbers, but I also have these conversations with folks at all levels of readiness across this profession and internationally, by the way, to have these types of conversations around what's next. And I think the takeaway that I hope everybody gets from hearing you impart wisdom here, and thank you for taking the time with me, I know how busy you are, is you've done your homework. And, you know, not long ago, it's possible it was in the hour before we had this conversation, so you and I were having the, 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 a, a discussion about needing to be able to boil the ocean down into the takeaway points, right? Do your homework, right? So that it's not just a matter of this is the right thing to do. You have to be able to go before 
your board, your community, your elected officials, the news media, right? And be able to say, here are the numbers. Here is the why. There is juice that was worth the squeeze. And you've done that work. And I, I know there are a lot of people out there who are asking you how to do this, who are asking you consulting published documents about how to build these programs. And the biggest takeaway that I would have from this conversation is that they need to be able to rattle off the numbers the way you just did. Because you need to understand your partner's needs. You need to understand how this model's onto you. And just like you started the conversation talking about how much is two days and three connections worth to me, right? You also need to be able to answer the question to all that you're responsible for. Is it worth us going down this route? Because these novel models of care, while they may be exciting, because they are novel and we do like our shiny objects, right? And I'm a technologist, I'm as guilty as anyone of that. Um, the, 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 the reality is not every community is appropriate and not every community is appropriate for every type just because it's the neat thing to do. You really have to do the homework and get into the granular detail that you just did to be able to say, I have to step back to an objective assessment, let the numbers do the talking. And, and then from there, I can make a cool headed decision. And, and that really is what management science is all about. So let me pause there. Uh, thank you, first of all, for being here. Thank to everyone who stayed with us. I hope you found quite a bit to take away in this conversation. Uh, Jeff, oh, editor, my editor, I will ask whether there are any questions uh, from the community on today's conversation. Uh, certainly want to address those. And if not, uh, that's okay too. <laughs> okay, nope, LOL, sounds good. <laughs> well, then this conversation will live for eternity uh, on the interwebs. Uh, we thank you all for being here. Um, Ruben, if there are people who want to follow up with you for further discussion about their specific case, what's the best way for them to find you? Uh, they can find me on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn under Ruben Farnsworth. Uh, you know, they can always email me. The best email to catch me is rockstareducation at gmail.com. Um, I'm pretty responsive on LinkedIn, pretty responsive on Facebook Messenger. So. And, and generally, I think you can find this fine gentleman poking the bear at a uh, den near you. So with that, thank you all very much. Stay safe, uh, be well, and we look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you, Ruben.